even before I noticed this, because I was not the first person to notice this, you know, decades before I even was training, usually dermatologists of color brought this up and it was an issue that was paid attention to for a little bit. But I'm really interested to see the sustained change. So will in in 20 years from now, will be, there be someone bringing this up in a similar capacity, maybe different specific situation? Or will we have sustained momentum and interest in changing this because we really realize how it can impact our, the care we're providing? This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word from the host and creator of The L Word podcast. Doctors and Litigation, The L Word, is a self-contained podcast curriculum that uses interviews and storytelling to give you the practical and psychological preparation required to survive and even thrive during and after medical malpractice litigation. Hi, listeners. Thank you for joining Today, I'm in conversation with doctors Jenna Lester and Susan Chan. Jenna is the founder of the Skin of Color Dermatology Program at UCSF. This program addresses the persistent issues that arise from the exclusion and marginalization of non-white patients in medical research and practice. We're talking textbooks, curricula, and more. She's a graduate of Harvard University and the Warren Alpert Medical School at Brown University. My second guest is Susan Chan. She's a Brown University graduate, followed by Stanford University Medical School and Dermatology Training. Currently, she's a professor in the Department of Dermatology at the University of Texas MD Anderson's Cancer Center. She focuses on skin cancers, melanomas, and skin disorders from cancer treatments. Moreover, she's a medical educator and an active mentor for medical students and dermatology residents. Now, The topic on which Susan, Jenna, and I focus has to do with, well, there's an article that came out last week in MedPage Today. The title of this article is, We Need More Illustrations of People of Color in Medical Textbooks. Subtitle, The Lack of Diversity Perpetuates Health Inequality and Stereotypes. Now, I'm going to read a bit from this article, and then I'm going to get to sort of what I see in the emergency department. And I read... The consequences of primarily depicting white, lighter-skinned individuals with Eurocentric features in medical images supports the pervasive concept of white supremacy. It perpetuates the belief that the white male body is the standard to which all other bodies should be compared. It leads to inequality in medical education and further perpetuates harmful stereotypes of black individuals. As a result, this issue plays a role in inappropriate diagnosis and health management of black individuals. Furthermore, medical care becomes subjective, discriminatory, and filled with speculatory assumptions based on stereotypes. In my practice in the emergency department, I can't share with you how many times I will have a student or a resident or even a colleague say, well, I really can't tell what this rash is, or well, I'm not sure if this infection is a skin infection because they have brown skin, because they have black skin. So when we get to the conversation, I've asked Jenna, is this just teaching that's passed down from generation to generation? Or what is this? What is it? What do you think this is that we see commonly in medicine? Well, I think this, unfortunately, is a manifestation of um, several things. I do think you do have to train your eye to see certain things and 
skin tones that you're not familiar with, particularly if you have lighter skin and you're used to seeing your skin and you're used to seeing your family members. And now all of a sudden you have to pick up on sometimes subtle details in a different skin tone. It's sort of like stepping out of your own world and figuring out how to navigate and in, in, in a situation where that's very unfamiliar to you. So I do think that's some of it, but I think also um, we, we use that as an excuse. Well, I can't see it. Well, in the cellulitis example, you know, redness or erythema or um, skin discoloration is not the only finding. Did you touch the patient? Did you see if there was warmth in the area? Did you talk to the patient and ask them about pain? And, and, you know, I think there's a lot more interaction that could happen there. And I sometimes wonder whether in our speed to do things in um, this medical system that is so focused on volume, whether we look for ways um, to sort of uh, to, to, to become faster, to be more efficient. Are there certain people we feel comfortable ignoring or anchoring or prematurely closing on their diagnosis in order to keep up with volume? Okay, I'm going to catch up on this patient. I've heard trainees say, oh, this is a skin check and a person with dark skin. This will be fast. And um, and I wonder whether we try to use certain patients who our system has told us are not as valuable as a way to close the gap in time when we're running behind or when the emergency department is full or and we need to make up for um, for this time. So I worry that it's a little more than just the seeing part. Yeah. Susan, uh, you are a professor of dermatology. You work with trainees. I'm wondering, do you see this? And what are your thoughts about where it comes from? So one thing I have noticed in looking at some of just the statistics for dermatology, there are more trainees of color you know, in recent years too, which is great. Our program is actually predominantly people of color. Um, so that's actually really, really good because I think there's a little bit more sensitivity to you know, skin of color. And also um, being in Houston, you know, it's the most diverse city. It really does help because our patient population in not just at the county, but actually at the cancer center and at the, you know, the other training hospitals is much more diverse. So I think there's a lot more openness to different skin types, but I totally agree with Jenna because there is a pressure beyond just the skin type of the patient you're seeing. It's the whole system, you know, all those things you mentioned, just you know, we have to, you know, we got to catch up. We got to, you know, keep up. We got to, you know, be more protective. And yes, people say like, oh, this will be easy. I've heard that many times too. And they kind of almost discount these patients. So, you know, one thing is to have obviously more dermatologists, um, trainees of color, because that definitely, you know, pretty much brings it to the forefront because, you know, these are patients that look like them, you know, and the patients feel like these are doctors that look like me. And for sure, the patients definitely you know, respond better, do better, have better outcomes when their patient, when their doctors look like them. Yeah. It's it's not just the system, obviously, it's what we're learning in med school or what we're learning in residency or, you know, the messaging we get at conferences. And that translates over to pictures and images and, you know, examples that are used when we're being taught. Jenna, your work has focused on this, and I'm wondering for the audience that may not be familiar, can you talk a little bit about the underrepresentation of skin color in educational texts for specific diseases versus others? 
Yeah, this is an area that I first became interested in, actually, in medical school. And I remember sitting in infectious disease lectures and um, looking at all the photos. You know, of course, there's there are these infectious diseases you've never seen before. You're intrigued. You're a second-year med student. And I started recognizing that I would only see dark skin when we were talking about sexually transmitted infections. And, you know, you wouldn't see you wouldn't see erythema migrans in dark skin, but every single photo of syphilis would be in dark skin. And there are these moments where you think, am I crazy or is this just me noticing this? And I remember walking out of the lecture in one of our infectious disease um, classes and talking to the handful of other um, Black students in my med school class and being asking, like, did you guys notice this? And everyone noticed it. Um, th- those that I asked noticed it. And this came up again in residency when I was sitting in a lecture and um, and there was a photo shown. And in dermatology residency, you know, there are lots of things that we need to know how to diagnose that we'll never see in real life. So we rely often on codochromes or photos of, um, of clinic, clinical images of skin disease in order to learn these diseases. And it was sort of glossed over. This would look different in dark skin, but not a real extensive discussion on how and no photos to represent that. And so, um, I worked with a few other, a few med students, um, and also, um, um, Dr. Meg Kren, who's the now the chair of dermatology at Vanderbilt. And we did a survey of the two common teaching textbooks that we learn in dermatology and also a slide set um, that medical students use when they're on their dermatology rotation and counted the photos and took, took account of the diseases um, and what skin type or skin color was represented within each with each disease. And we basically found that overall, there is underrepresentation of dark skin in these photos. Um, you know, I would argue you need to see every skin disease in every possible skin tone in order to get good at it. So um, I think a one to one representation is what would be what I would consider adequate. And that, but but we noticed even though only about, you know, 30% of the total photos were of dark skin, um, over 50% of those photos showing sexually transmitted infections were in dark skin. So it was very clear that there was a bias that either was being created and or reinforced by the the, the way this information was being presented. And you can think of how, what a powerful bias this creates in the minds of learners who are looking at these photos and relying on them as primary knowledge. So um, that that is something that others had noticed you know, before and has now is something that now has been redemonstrated several times and published and has been expanded to look at journals, et cetera. And it's the findings are quite similar. So I'm happy that our field is starting to look at this and address it. Yeah. You're the founder of the Skin of Color Dermatology Program at UCSF. And I want to hear more about that. But first, Susan, what have you noticed over time in terms of what we're teaching, what pictures we're showing and using as, as illustrations to med students, to residents, um, to even in your case conferences that you see weekly? Well, I, I agree with the um, historical, like uh, the, the, you know, the tomes that we use in Derm are almost all, you know, white skin. That's, that, I mean, that is just the standard. I mean, and it's been like that for decades. And I think I've definitely seen that shift too. I think last year during some of our 
um, regional DERM society meetings, there's been a lot more presentations regarding, you know, what kind of, you know, what kind of, what kind of, you know, textbooks, what kind of, you know, slide sets do we perpetuate by using them over and over when they aren't representative, you know, and for so many of, you know, the trainees now, it's even more kind of a stark contrast because, you know, I think the trainees have shifted to at least, and I can see that in our, in our own training program over the past like two decades, just, you know, there are more people of color, you know, so I think that has made it, you know, and it shouldn't be our, a burden for us to have to do that, I feel like, but it's brought it to the forefront of people's minds that at least now people are actually, you know, willing to even like consider it, like the fact that there's a, you know, skin of color dermatology, you know, section at UCSF, that's fantastic. Yeah. And I think just to frame for the audience who may not be medical, uh, who may be like, well, so what, what's the big deal? Well, Jenna, you highlighted the big deal is if you get the messaging that only certain people or certain people predominantly represent those with sexually transmitted infections or certain people um, don't merit the same time, the same physical examination to be unclothed. But I think also something that's really important is delays in diagnosis. And, um, you know, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about delays in diagnosis and the skin of, of color dermatology program. So, yeah, I think delays in diagnosis are certainly um, important. And we, there, and, and Susan, you may be able to speak to this more, but we know that there are certain conditions that um, people with, you know, non-white patients present to the doctor at a later stage in disease, melanoma being one of them. Um, and even at the same stage of disease have a have worse outcomes. So um, I think delay is certainly very important. Um, and we still have a ways to go in terms of investigating and, and, and coming up with data to really explore that further. Um, I think what's even what is which what is as important as a delay in diagnosis, because when we think of delays, we think of morbidity or harm to the patient. We think of people dying. But I think what is even more immediate and important than that is the fact that patients can pick up on the fact that you're not familiar, you're not comfortable with their skin. I've had people tell me this. And, you know, whether there's something objective that made them think that or whether it was a feeling they got, that is part of their experience and that is valid and that impacts whether they decide to do the treatments recommended, that impacts whether they decide to come back to see that doctor for follow-up. And depending on what the condition is, that can be very important. And actually, we know, at least at our medical center, that dermatology is a major entry point for um, for patients into the medical system. So if they have a bad experience with dermatology, that can turn them away from further care. And so that means they're not going to include in with their primary care doctor who discovers they have hypertension and then they go see the cardiologist and they actually have, you know, left ventricular like issues. You know, there's so many ways that this could go. So I think even before we um, even before we're able to fully quantify what misdiagnoses are possible because of inability to recognize nuances in diagnostics and in, in, um, visual diagnostics, we have the immediate reaction of the patient and the reverberations of their bad care to their neighbors, to their family members. You know, you mentioned these findings. We often always think of things as far away. 
And we often always reference the Tuskegee syphilis experiment or the syphilis experiment in Guatemala or these far off historical events. And I think the recent issues that patients have when they go to the doctor today is probably what impacts them more. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought this up because one of your publications is entitled Absence of Images of Skin of Color in Publications of COVID-19 Skin Manifestations. And so I really, really want to emphasize that this is not decades ago or a century ago. This is now. This is now. So enter the Skin of Color Dermatology Program. Tell us about it. So, um, yes, I agree. This is now. Um, we see COVID-19 developing and we can, and there's potential for disparities and inequities to develop before our eyes, which is why I found it important to raise that issue. I wanted to make sure we were um, representing all skin tones when we were looking at the cutaneous manifestations of COVID-19, not only because it was disproportionately impacting communities of color, and at the time we were not sure about what skin signs could tell us and at what point um, they would be helpful, but also just because we need to be able to recognize this in everyone. So yes, that that current events are 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 very important um, for that, and this is not a distant boogeyman that happened. 50 years ago. Um, and part of the um, reason for the Skin of Color program, which I've had the privilege of um, starting and working with for the past uh, three and a half years, um, as a resident here in San Francisco, I saw lots of different patients of all skin tones and um, noticed how the Black patients that I saw would you know, always say to me, you're the only Black doctor I've ever had. Not just Black dermatologists, Black doctor in general. There was this one distinct moment that I'll never forget that I was a resident and there was a resident, internal medicine resident rotating in dermatology with us who was also Black and there was a Black patient and she was just like, I cannot believe that I'm in a room with two Black doctors. Oh my God. And she was there with her her two kids. And it was like just a, it was like a beautiful moment for all of us. And I recognize that despite the demographics shifting in the Bay Area towards, um, you know, a more homogenous spread of people, that there are people here that, that should have options in their care and should have care that centers them. Um, and, you know, people have told me that it wasn't possible. There's not enough people to see. And I see patients of all different, you know, races um, and ethnicities. And I, my schedule is very full. So, um, so it's, it's a need. And there's, there's data that suggests that patients like being seen in this setting. And it makes sense because when you've excluded certain people from care for so long, you want to invite them back in by showing them, by putting up signs that say, this is a place for you where we are focused on your issues and your needs. Yeah. Susan, a lot of your work has been on uh, skin cancers and prevention. And where have you seen uh, skin of color uh, enter or show its head? Well, I guess one thing is kind of what Jenna was mentioning, how people say, oh, they're African-American, they won't have anything. So they already kind of check the box off before they walk in the room. But that goes for other ethnicities too. You know, they go, oh, you know, Asians don't have that many skin cancers or Hispanics, they're, they have a lot of pigment. And things like that are really just re kind of just reductionist. And so like, I try to reemphasize them. Yes, they have maybe a less risk, but it doesn't mean they have no risk. And so 
trying to keep, you know, an open mind and also just, you know, like she said, you have to kind of recognize each person as an individual and stop reducing them to a color, a race. Um, and there are plenty of examples where we've diagnosed melanoma or skin cancer or both in, you know, patients who are traditionally people of color. So one of the things is, I think when I train residents is um, their language inside the room. They don't even know what they say because it's so automatic. And some of that is just really detrimental. They'll be like, oh, I can't really tell, you know, and they'll say, you know, out loud in front of the patient. And like you said, it undermines this patient doctor kind of trust you're trying to develop, but it also makes them feel like they're not special enough or unique enough to deserve, you know, some kind of more attention to detail. They're like, oh yeah, I, I can't tell. And then that's it. That's it. You know, they, then they go, I'll have, I have my attending look at that, you know, or something, but I'll be in the room sometimes. They'll still say that. And I'm like, oh my goodness. So part of it's just the way they treat each person, you know, and I, and then as far as prevention, you know, yes, there are statistics show that they are less at risk, but that doesn't mean you change your attitude or your, your words or your behavior when you, um, when you examine a patient. So trying to train the next generation to be more mindful of, you know, every patient they see, you know, regardless of their skin, you know, the, their color of their skin. Susan, that you made so many good points there about communication and also about like recognizing, recognizing each person you see as a human instead of, instead of, you know, the, as signifiers of particular things that you remember from USMLE and like, does this person, is this person a young black woman with a cough? So then it must be sarcoid. Or is this person like, you know, you know, someone with a swollen red face and then, and so they must have dress and maybe they have some, you know, depending on their race or ethnicity, some genetic, you know, mutation associated with higher rates of dress with certain, with certain, um, medications. I just got a little bit in the weeds there. Um, but, but I think what's more important is to look at a person and say, this is a human who has the, who has risk for various diseases who I need to evaluate completely. And I'm not going to reduce down to their various identifiers. And I'm going to take every concern they have seriously and um, really do a complete exam. And I, I also think language that you use is so, so important. Um, and and I think that really is what we have. Communication is what we have to sort of traverse these these boundaries of differences. We will, we will probably not in my lifetime have enough, you know, Black dermatologists to see every Black patient that wants to see one because they feel more comfortable. But I think there are intangible things that we can teach that um, that as long as they are backed with true effort and understanding and caring can really bridge the, a lot of those boundaries. So I totally agree with what you were saying. Jenna, can you provide an example or two? Um, so I, I see a lot of patients with hair loss and a lot of patients with textured hair with hair loss. Um, and a lot of times these patients come to me and they're like, oh, well, this doctor or that doctor didn't know or didn't understand. And I listen to those um, concerns. And then I I start to try to understand, you know, what treatments were offered. Well, this doctor told me to wash my hair every day. And for patients with Afro-textured hair, you know, washing hair every day is not something that is a typical practice. So instead of asking, you know, what are your typical practices around hair care? Um, 
maybe you remember a snippet from a lecture or something that suggests there's something different. You don't necessarily remember the differences, but you invite the patient to share with you as opposed to assuming and sort of giving a top-down like diagnosis and treatment as, as a result of that sort of understanding you think you have. So inviting someone to, to, to share with you how they typically do things. And let's say you don't, you don't do it. You don't um, invite that sharing before you give a treatment. You say, okay, here, use this shampoo every single day. And then um, you at that point can say, how do you think that would work for you? Do you think that would fit in what your, your normal um, sort of hair care um, strategies or practices? Um, Because that is a big thing. And, and I always joke that like the number one way to lose credibility with someone with textured hair is to tell them to wash their hair every day. And it almost sort of delegitimizes everything else that you say, because it just shows a complete lack of understanding. And whereas I spent my youth begging my parents to buy me Teen Vogue and Teen People, and I was learning how to get beachy blonde waves and you know, all of these hair tricks and makeup tricks that weren't ever designed for to work for me. Through that process, I learned how other people, you know, do their hair and practice their hair. And I get, you know, dry shampoo and all these other things that I don't personally do because I was, you know, always reaching for magazines and things that didn't necessarily represent me. And I think the same thing can be true. Do a Google search. Google is like such a great resource. If a patient tells you that they had Fulani braids or they had box braids and you don't know what those are, you need to look it up. So um, I think that there are lots of ways that we can, um, as long as we care enough to take that extra step, just like you need to you know, look up what is this disease association, these symptoms associated with each other? Is there a syndrome here? You look it up if you're not familiar. Um, I think this same thing can be true when you're trying to understand, you know, differences that you might have with your patient. Yeah. Susan, you said that you have seen changes over time and that the dermatology and the society meetings seem more open and receptive and now are prioritizing. Have you seen any pushback, say, from chairs or from leaders of societies of like, oh, that's not important or, oh, you know, I roll. Okay, we'll do that. You know, how much is uh, true belief versus lip service or I roll? I think there's a changing of the guard. Um, you know, there's definitely a, a sea change because even the people that I see inside Grand Rounds now is different. You know, I think when I was training, which was almost 25 years ago, you know, Honestly, I'd walk in and be a sea of Caucasian people. And then the edges, the, the trainees are people of color. And now I kind of see that getting more dispersed and the central part of the room now has more people of color. So I, there's definitely a change. And I don't think they're doing lip service. I think people are, this generation, my kids' generation is just so much more aware. You know, they're, they're more open, they're more accepting, they're more sensitive. They're, you know, I think it's just a, a different time. And I think it's great because it's going to affect all of these fields, you know, I mean, in dermatology, it's, it's very obvious because it's a visual field, but I think in other fields too, it's actually changing. So I think, you know, maybe some of them don't feel it deeply or sincerely, but outwardly, you know, they're towing the line. They're like, yeah, we need to do this. We want to support these programs. We, we need to have more trainees of color. We need to more have faculty of color. So I think there is definite changes from what I can see over these decades, just from when I train to what I see now, it's, it's definitely different. Yeah. 
Jenna, have you seen or experienced any pushback because of what the work you're doing, the, the talks you're giving, the TED Talk you gave? Um, well, if you look at the TED Talk on YouTube, some of the comments are like, you know, people don't necessarily agree with what I'm saying, which is fine. Not everyone has to agree. So I would say, yeah, I have experienced some pushback. Luckily, it's few and far between. Um, I would say the overwhelming majority of people understand and it makes sense. Um, and I think especially in the past, um, you know, couple of years when a lot of these issues were coming to light for people who hadn't been thinking about them before, um, you know, given the situation in the country with COVID and the disparities, but also um, I think George Floyd, George Floyd's murder brought up a lot of these things about equity in general that various, you know, disciplines started to interpret in their own way, you know, in medicine, outside of medicine. Um, so I do think that it has improved in the past several years. I will say when I first tried to publish the um, the first paper that I published on this topic, I did get a lot of pushback and it was rejected from journals and there were comments like, well, we know that this is an issue and it's up to individual departments to deal with it. And so, um, so yeah, it hasn't always been something that has, that um, we was openly accepted. And even before I noticed this, because I was not the first person to notice this, you know, decades before I even was training, dermatologists usually dermatologists of color brought this up and it was an issue that was paid attention to for a little bit, but I'm really interested to see the sustained change. So we'll in, in 20 years from now, will be, there be someone bringing this up in a similar capacity, maybe different specific situation, or will we have sustained momentum and interest in this, in changing this um, because we really realize how it can impact our, the care we're providing. Yeah. Completely in terms of the, sustained change and repeating things over time. You know, there's so much in medicine that we've seen that has not changed in 20, 25 years. You know, um, you know, when we talk about salary inequity, when we talk about, uh, people getting to leadership positions and, um, this ties back to, you know, the name of the podcast is the visible voices. And what struck me, uh, about you and the work you're doing is the need to use your voice. So one of my questions I'd like to ask guests, and this is for both of you, is when did you first realize you had a voice and when did you start using that voice? So Susan, why don't you go first and then Jenna? Actually, one of the first times I think was when I was a medical student. You know, up to that point, you're just kind of like, you know, just keeping up, trying to stay in the grind and just get through everything. And it was during the derm rotation and I hadn't decided if I was applying to derm. And I remember we were taking out this giant condyloma bushki in the genital areas. And my job as a messenger was to... For the audience that may not know what that is, can you just like walk <laughs> them through what that, what that, what that is? Yes, yeah, giant genital wart. And um, they, they were trying to like basically cauterize this, I don't know, it's like a, this giant, you know, virally loaded wart. And I, my job as a medical student was to hold, you know, basically this little vacuum to suck up all the flying virus particles and debris, whatever. And the whole time I'm like, this is so bad. And I just thinking this is just not, and, you know, Susan can you get in here a little bit more, a little closer. I'm like, Oh God, you know, and I honestly can't remember if we wore masks or not. And I thought this is terrible. So after that happened, the next day I went to the chair of the department and I said, you know what, this is 
not right. You should have, you know, masks for everyone. You shouldn't have medical students just, you know, getting in there and just, you know, sucking up these viral particles. And I, I don't think this is something, you know, that is responsible and you really should have better equipment. And honestly, I don't think the patient was being well cared for. He was in a lot of pain. He should have gone to the OR. I just went on and on. And then like a week later after the rotation was over, I was like, oh, hi, chairman. Um, I like to apply to Derm, but you know, I was like, well, it is what it is. But you know, I felt like it was something that was wrong. And I, and it was time to like stand up for all of us because we were all doing it in that room. And I thought this is just not good for anyone and, and the patient included. And so I felt like you just have to, you have to speak up, um, whatever the consequences, if you know, you have to do what's right. And, and that was what was right, you know, and I just had to like meekly go back into the office the next week with my tail between my legs and ask if I could apply for residency in this program. And he respected that. So I feel like that was when I felt like, okay, I have a voice and I have to use it for, you know, the right things. That's a really hard question. I'm like struggling to think of an answer. I feel like this is a better question for my parents because I, um, I've always, I've, I've never been one that's shy to speak my mind. Um, I never have been um, described as a shrinking violet. I think there was probably a time, you know, during residency, intern year residency, where I lost sight of that a little bit because of some like negative experiences that I had in, in training and, um, and had to like figure out how to, how to sort of, uh, not find my voice again, but figure out how I figure out the self-sacrifice and speaking up and balancing that with the, the need that my patients have for my advocacy. So, um, you know, it's scary be having someone send you what feels like a professionally threatening email when you're trying to publish something that maybe hadn't been discussed in a while and, and um, holds up a big mirror to the specialty. But you also decide that at a certain point, this is important enough. And that actually comes through mentorship. And I credit my, um, my mentor, Meg Crenn, significantly for that because she kept saying, no, this is too important. We have to get this published. So would push and advocate. And, um, and I think through that, I realized that this, I do actually have a very important um, message to give. And this person who is so well accomplished and has done a ton of stuff has validated um, that for me. And I feel very grateful for that because that's not always something that you get. Um, someone telling you, despite the fact that people have told you no about this, this is something that's important and we need to get this published. So I would say end of residency is when I found it again, despite having been vocal most of my life. I learned a lot. I learned a lot from Jenna, and I can't tell you how much I learned from an ongoing basis with Susan when I ask her about different rashes and different skin presentations of disease processes that I see in the emergency department. But before we get to the Risa wrap-up, here's a word from the host and creator of The Nocturnists. Hey there, Visible Voices listeners. I'm Emily Silverman, a doctor in San Francisco and creator and host of The Nocturnists, a medical storytelling live show and podcast where healthcare workers share stories of joy, sorrow, and self-discovery. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, audience, thank you for joining me in this uh, healthcare, health disparities, 
maximizing quality patient care episode. This is an important topic, and um, the amount of institutionalized racism in medicine from, as you heard today, uh, the textbooks, the case presentations, the slides, certain people being associated with different disease processes, who's more worthy of a physical examination and care versus others, it's not made up, it's present. And there are many of us who are committed to trying to make a difference and trying to make it better for our trainees, because ultimately that means that we're providing better care for our patients. See you next week. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.